as you can see by the thing up on the wall here, that this is our third part in the series that we're doing called Mail Call. If you remember, we had an introductory message here a couple weeks ago, and then last week we talked about the church at Ephesus. And if you'll remember, uh, I entitled that, Has Your Love Grown Cold? And one of the, the major issues that the church at Ephesus had was that they had lost their first love. Uh, they had lost that, that first love of um, just loving Jesus for, for you know, the, and for us, that should be the main goal of Christianity and of the church is to love Jesus. And so today, we're going to move on to our next church, which is the church at Smyrna. Uh, so I want to begin by uh, just sharing with you a couple things here. First of all, love, love is the universal language, but so is music, and so, unfortunately, is suffering. You know, they speak this dialect without words um, that I believe can only be understood by the soul. And so, you know, they, they have a way of communicating far more deeply than what words could communicate to us. The verbalization that could never speak. You know, they can, they can speak of unbelievable ecstasy, unbelievable joy, and at the same time, they can, they can speak of unexplainable misery of the soul. Such suffering. A friend once asked a father who had just recently lost his child, his child had died, and he asked him, how are you doing? To which the father replied after somewhat of a painful pause. He just, he, he, he just had to pause to think about that. And he said to the man, he says, I'll tell you as soon as I can find the words. If you've experienced that, you know exactly what he's saying there. See, there's, there are none. There are none. Words cannot sound the depths of the, the, of the suffering soul. Because, see, the pain, I think the pain goes too deep a lot of times. Even in prayer at times, the, the suffering becomes so intense that words fail and only, only a groan can prevail. As suffering, what I say here is the broken language of a devastated soul. I want you to listen to what one preacher had to say. This is a preacher... And this is what he said. He said, several years ago, my life was a mess. He said, after enduring a painful divorce, I was jobless and I was living with a friend. He said, I was, I was an absolute emotional wreck. I couldn't understand why all these bad things kept happening to me. That's what he said. Then one day I got this letter in the mail. It was a card, actually. It was from a family at a church that I had served in earlier years. And he said, they, they heard what I was going, what was going on in my life, what I was going through, and they sent me this card as a bit of encouragement. It simply said, we just want you to know that we are thinking of you and praying for you. And that preacher said, I don't know why, but that brief message was a real comfort to me, and to this day, I still have that card. You know, the church at Smyrna 
understood that language, guys. They understood it. They were, by persecution and poverty, they were fluent in the dialects of hunger and loneliness and fear and pain and suffering. They knew it well. They knew it. The word Smyrna carries this idea of, of, the, of the word myrrh. Remember when the, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh is what they brought to Jesus? I'm sure that myrrh was used also in, in burials. It was a perfume. And so the word, the word Smyrna means myrrh. And this, this city was located about 35 miles north of Ephesus. And just like Ephesus was also a seaport city, so was Smyrna. It was right along the coast. It was a, a, an ancient seaport city. But let me tell you something. It was renowned for its beauty. This, this, this country, this area was just renowned for its beauty. Smyrna was often referred to as first in Asia in beauty and size. As a matter of fact, you know how on our money we have in God we trust? Well, on Smyrna's money, they had that written on there, first in Asia in beauty and size. That's what they had written on their money. You know, although Smyrna was enthusiastically Roman through and through, kind of like you um, Pittsburgh Steeler fans here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, they were just absolutely Roman through and through. And it was also the home of a what I would call a humble body of believers completely sold out and committed to Jesus Christ. It was a small, humble abode there. But see, Smyrna was also famous for a stadium that they had there, and it was also one of the largest public theaters in Asia Minor that was located right there in Smyrna. You know, one one of the few planned cities of antiquity. You know, Smyrna's sweeping streets escorted them from the harbor down by the shore about 500 feet or so up, you know, up above and necklaced around it. They, it. It took them up to this place called Mount Pegasus. That's where it was. It took them up to Mount Pegasus. So necklaced around Pegasus was a famous thoroughfare. And that thoroughfare, does anybody know what it was called? Besides Chrissy? <laughs> it was called the Street of Gold. That, that thoroughfare all the way around, which kind of necklaced around Pegasus, was called the Street of Gold, whose beginning and end marked, it was, it was marked by stately temples to Zeus and to Cybel. You know, that the, these temples were to Zeus and Cybel. And atop of Mount Pegasus gleamed the Acropolis and numerous colonnaded buildings, which by their magnificent appearance earned them the title the crown of Smyrna, the crown of Smyrna. But you know what else was really popular there? Heathen culture and paganism. I mean, it abounded, you know, it absolutely abounded in, in heathen culture and paganism. This, this religion thrived with almost unparalleled splendor. And because Smyrna was a center for emperor worship, they also boasted a, a small but strongly anti-Christian Jewish population. So think about 
where this church is located and all the people that are around them and what they had against them, going against them. It was, it was very difficult. And so life for the believer was anything but easy in, the, in this church. Many of them were unemployed. They were unwelcomed and under extreme persecution. These people were. But you know what? Here's the interesting thing. In the midst of their difficulties and their discouragement, guess what they got? They got a letter from Jesus. They got a letter from Jesus by way of John. John John sends them this letter, a brief word of encouragement, not from, you know, some kind-hearted Christian group. They got a letter from Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to open our third letter up. And I've asked Glenn May to come, and he's going to open it for us, and he's going to read it. And Glenn, if you would, read in that microphone there, because they've been having, Dan's been having a hard time picking people up. <laughs> yeah, you got to, there you go. Testing, check, check, one. Yeah, there you go. Dear brothers and sisters of the quarter... Wait, am I supposed to read that part? Yeah. Okay. Read the whole letter. Dear brothers and sisters of the Cornerstone Church of Christ, I share to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan or are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. May God's love be made complete in us. Sincerely, the Apostle John. Thank you. Aware of the trouble that these Christians had found themselves in, Jesus decided that what he was going to do is express his immeasurable love by sending this letter of encouragement and strength to the church at Smyrna. Just like this preacher that we were talking about just a little bit ago, you know, he was in a, in a way that was just so difficult. And he got this letter from that family that just lifted his spirits up. And I will tell you that that, that, that minister is back in the ministry again because of what they did for him. And so here we see the same thing happening here. You know, Jesus sends them this, this, this letter to encourage them and to strengthen them because of all the suffering and, and, and the situation that was going on in the church there. And like each of the seven letters to the, to the seven churches, what Jesus does here is he begins with his credentials. Um, in the opening of his letter, Jesus initially describes himself as what? The first and the last, that's right. The alpha and the mega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's what he, he describes himself as the first and the last. This phrase when read by Hebrew Christians, 
would have immediately triggered memories of the Old Testament scriptures. Because if you remember back in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, deep within the prophecy of Isaiah, the Bible declares this. In Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, it says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies, I am the first and the last. There is no other God. So by quoting this sacred scripture in his letter to the church at Smyrna, here's what Jesus was doing. He was sending this powerful and yet provocative message. We sang it. That was by accident. That was God. That was God ordained. Wasn't it this morning about that Jehovah song? Because he was, he was proclaiming. He was saying with unwavering resolve, I am God. That's what Jesus was saying. I am the Almighty, the King and Redeemer. I am the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the beginning and the end. That's an incredible claim. Incredible claim. For many, it's almost an unbelievable claim. For many, it's almost an unbelievable uh, claim. Because if you remember back to John's gospel, when he recorded the, the seven different statements where Jesus claimed to be the great I am, remember that? Remember what Jesus did back in the book of John, the gospel of John? He, he claimed to be the great I am. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the gate for the sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then he goes on to say, I am the true vine. You know, it, it was, but, but see, it wasn't there. It was the statement in John chapter 8, verses 58 through 59, that almost got Jesus killed. Look, look what it said. Verily I, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. The claim that he made there just about got him killed because they knew what he was saying before Abraham was born, I am. He was claiming to be God. Tell anyone what you think about Jesus as far as being a wise and wonderful teacher, and you're probably not going to get any argument from people. Announce that you believe the, that the carpenter from Nazareth was an excellent moral example. Probably no one's going to dispute you. They probably won't, they probably won't get in your face and, and yell at you or anything. But if you tell the world that you believe that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is in fact God himself, that Jesus is in fact the God who spoke the universe into existence, and some folks cannot wrap their, their minds around that. And they're probably going to try to wrap you around a pole. That's what they're going to try to do. Their quarries are summed up by Solomon's question in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 18 from the New Living Translation. But will God really live on earth among his people? Will he really live on earth among his people? But you know what? If Jesus' claims 
Now, I want you to hear this, guys. This is important. If Jesus' claims are true, then he was at once both God and man. If his allegations are actual, then what that does is it changes everything, doesn't it? It changes everything. Not just for the folks in Smyrna, though, but for you and me and everyone else in the whole world. Jesus wanted these believers to remember that he wasn't just a good man or even a great man. He wasn't just those things. He was the God-man. He was sovereign. He was eternal. And he proved it. He proved it by coming back to life after dying on the cross. He proved everything that he said he would do. As the famous hymn once said, death could not hold him. The grave could not keep him from rising again. That's not just a casting crown song. That was a hymn called One Day. But the grave couldn't hold him. Death could not hold him. The grave couldn't keep him from rising again. And his credentials to the church in Smyrna also contain these words. Not just the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the, the Alpha and the Omega, but it also said these, these words here in verse 8. It says, who was dead but is now alive. Who was dead and is now alive. Jesus wasn't the first person to make this claim of deity, you know. He wasn't the first person to do that. The pharaohs of Egypt believed themselves to be gods, the bright and morning star. Those who, who worshipped the Roman Empire believed Caesar was God incarnate. But you know what the difference between the pharaohs and Caesar is than Jesus? Do you know what the difference is? They are still dead. They are still in the grave. Jesus authenticated everything that he said, ever said, or did when he brought himself back to life. You know, some of these believers may have been, maybe they saw him. Maybe they saw the resurrected Christ, you know, with um, their own two eyes. Um, Most of them probably heard it and believed the testimony of Paul, the Apostle Paul, and others. But you know what? Today, today we have such overwhelming evidence of Jesus' resurrection we really do. Not, not only does Jesus' resurrection prove his position as the God-man, but it proves his power over the grave. And you know what else it proves? It proves his promise of eternal life for those who believe and obey in him. You don't have to question it. Jesus already proved it. He already did it for us. We don't have to prove it. Jesus did. So as the first and the last, nothing can take Jesus by surprise. He knows the beginning from the end. And even if our lives are threatened, Jesus, who was dead and is now alive, can can and will raise us up to eternal life too. He can do that. You know, this is the God in whom we trust. His name is Jesus. And I'm sure this portrait of Christ came as a great comfort to the persecuted church in Smyrna. It had to have. 
So following his credentials, Christ does something else. Jesus, Jesus gives them a word of encouragement to the suffering church. Jesus comforts the, the, the Christians in Smyrna by saying this. He says this. And it's, this is kind of an interesting statement, I think. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. That's an interesting statement from Revelation 2.9 there. See, the problem in Smyrna came in the form of persecution, which also translated into poverty. And if you will notice back in, in history, many times when people are persecuted, there is a sense of poverty that follows along with that. So the citizens of Smyrna were, were hostile towards Christianity in, in two different directions. On one side, they faced hatred and persecution from the local Jews. Remember what Jesus says? He mentions that in, in, in Revelation 2, 9b there, he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. It says they, they are a synagogue of Satan. They are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says that these Hebrews are not true Jews because Paul says this in, in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. It says, a person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart. It's of the heart, guys, by the Spirit, not by the, the written code, the law. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. These Jews, because they had violated Christ and they had victimized the, the Christians, were in reality allied with Satan rather than God. And that's what he was telling them there, that they're allied with Satan rather than God. They blasphemed and slandered the Christians in a variety of ways, accusing them of everything from cannibalism. Can you believe they were accusing them of cannibalism? Do you know how they got that? Because of the Lord's Supper, because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, they accused them of cannibalism. How ridiculous is that? Oh, those, those Christians, they eat the flesh and the blood of Jesus. They're cannibals. To political disloyalty and rebellion... Because Jesus claimed to be king. And so, you don't want to have anything to do with that. But you know, the Jews were only part of the problem in Smyrna. As mentioned before, Smyrna was also a center of emperor worship. You know that. So the, the citizens of Smyrna were fanatical. I mean, just absolutely fanatical to, to an extreme you know, in, in A.D. 26, just a few short years before Jesus was crucified, Rome rewarded Smyrna's loyalty by choosing it above all other candidates, above all other candidates, including Ephesus, because Ephesus was a big town. It was a big, that was a big thing. They, they, they won, they were the candidate over even Ephesus as the site for a, a new temple dedicated to the, the worship of of the emperor Tiberius Claudius Nero. But you see, 
by the time Jesus had sent this letter to Smyrna, this, this maniac emperor who went by several names, Nero Caesar, Tiberius Claudius Nero, had already risen to power. And many of you have probably studied this situation with, with him because Christians refused to worship what Nero did. They, they were not going to worship him as the Almighty God or as Savior. And so what he did was back in AD 64, he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome and instigated a three-and-a-half-year persecution that claimed the lives of thousands upon thousands of Christian people, including every single apostle except for John. That's what Nero did. You see, folks, the Christians in Smyrna, they were going through it. But they aren't the only ones who have experienced persecution, though. Did you know that there are more martyrs today than there were in the days of the Roman Empire? It is estimated that 200,000 Christians are martyred each year around the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. Can you, can you even fathom what 200,000 people would be like if you were to take the largest stadium in the United States, which probably can hold about 100, 120,000 people maybe, and add another 80,000 people to that, that's, two, that's 200,000 people. 200,000 people a year are being martyred around the world because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Recently, in a small village in Bangladesh, there were 30 Christian families who stood outside of this local mosque they were surrounded by 500 angry Muslims. Among the Christians was a young father by the name of Myra Jarelli. He was a new convert from Islam. Muslim leaders, what they did was they interrogated each family in turn. Of those 30 families, they interrogated each of the families. When it was Myra's turn to stand before the court, this is what he said to them. Now imagine you have 500 Muslims standing around you, and this is what he said. He said, in your religion, there is no salvation, no hope for going to heaven. I have Jesus, and now I am whole. Now Jesus has forgiven my sins, and I have hope for heaven. Wow. All because of what they said, because of their interrogation, the result of that was this. All the Christian families were forbidden to use the village well. They had to instead walk over a mile and a half to the river to get water. Myra was tied back to back with another Christian man. They were locked in a cell and they were severely beaten for four days. See, Voice of the Martyrs has so many stories like this one here of people being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. I have that book that was put out by DC Talk about the Voice of the Martyrs, I'm telling you, called Jesus Freaks. Let me tell you something, folks. We don't know how good we have it here, do we? 
Every one of us ought to drop to our knees every day and pray for the persecuted church around the world and be thankful that we have never been persecuted to the point of shedding our blood. But let me say something else here too. We must not let our guards down either because it could be coming. And the reason why I say that is this. Wherever there are faithful Christians, persecution follows. And Jesus said this in John 15, 20. He says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute, persecute you also. If they obey my teachings, they will obey yours also. He says, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Expect that. It's going to come. Not surprisingly, the persecution against Christians in, in many Roman cities, what it did was it, it resulted in poverty. You know, this word translated poor in verse 9 means abject poverty. Or in other words, it means possessing absolutely nothing. Imagine living your life right now and you having absolutely nothing. Maybe you have to live down by the river in a van. Maybe you have to live under a bridge. Um, but it's, it's this idea of, of having absolutely nothing, possessing nothing. So despite the fact that Smyrna was a very wealthy city, Christians were under extreme economic pressure, absolutely. They often had their possessions and, and their properties confiscated, and they were forbidden to, to buy and to sell and to trade in the, in, the, in the marketplace. They weren't allowed to do that. And yet, this is what Jesus says to them. But really... You are rich. What? <laughs> say, say what? Are you, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? <laughs> but really, you are rich. Imagine, imagine Jesus saying, your, your families may have turned against you, but now you are in the family of God. You, you have lost your, your job, but, but you have a higher calling. You may have rags on your back, but but you have been clothed in righteousness. Your pockets may be empty, but your hearts can be full. You, you are being persecuted, but you can rejoice that you are counted worthy. Your bodies are in danger, but your soul is safe. Your names may be blasphemed on earth, but your names are spoken with reverence around the great white throne. Men may be against you, but guess what? God is for you. So whenever you begin to feel a little underprivileged, we would all do well to count our blessings, to name them one by one, because you know what will happen? It'll surprise you what the Lord has done. Amen? Absolutely. Now, after giving his credentials and some comforting words, Jesus does one last thing here. He gives a simple and straightforward command to them. This was Jesus' command. He says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, he says this, Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. If you remain faithful, even when facing death, he says, after even facing death, he says, I will give you a crown of life. 
I will give you a crown of life. Don't be afraid. This was one of Jesus' favorite commands. Don't be afraid. Oh, yeah? He repeats it no less than 20 times in dozens of situations throughout the New Testament. Don't be afraid. But you know what? Sometimes it's hard not to be afraid, though, isn't it? It really is. You know, we, we may not fear persecution or martyrdom like the church in Smyrna did, but there are still plenty of us to be afraid of in this world. You know, do you have a fear of rejection that, that keeps you from sharing your faith or a fear of intimacy that prevents you from sustaining any kind of healthy relationship? Maybe you have a fear of, of failure that, that thwarts every attempt that you try anything new and you don't want to try anything new because I'm afraid I'm going to fail. Whatever challenge we meet, whatever obstacle we face, we don't have to be afraid because we, like the church at Smyrna, have God on our side. If you're facing cancer, if you're facing Alzheimer's, if you're facing a car crash or, or a failing ec- uh, economy like it's going on now, um, or a floundering 401k or teen pregnancy or, or crime or, or natural disasters, come what may, remember this. God is always on our side. He is always with us. In the words of the hymnist, E.A. Hoffman, he says this, What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms of Jesus. What have we to dread? What have we to fear? Jesus is there. Whatever fears we have, we can rest assured that Jesus is in control and it's not going to last forever. It's not going to last forever. You know, Jesus charges all seven churches in the book of Revelations, chapter 2 and 3, with this command. He charges them with the command to overcome. That's what he does. In relation to the church at Smyrna, we could interpret overcome as not succumbing to the temptation to save our own lives and desert Jesus. You know, an earthly death, listen, an earthly death pales in significance in comparison to a spiritual death. God's final judgment, the lake of fire. Those who are faithful to Christ are saved from that second death. We don't have to experience that. Let me share one who overcame. I am sure that you've probably heard of this guy. He's probably the, the one of the most famous bishops, the elder, you know, overseers. His name was Polycarp. Anybody hear of Polycarp? Okay. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna, believe it or not. He was the bishop of Smyrna. Uh, when they say bishop, I, I'm taking it that he was an overseer. He was a he was an elder, but he was martyred. In A.D. 155, during the Roman games, this riotous crowd shouted, away with the atheist, you know, away with the atheist, find Polycarp. They, They called him an atheist. So under torture, this poor slave told where Polycarp was staying. And so the Roman guard came to arrest him. Polycarp offered a meal to his enemies. And he asked for one hour, one hour, one last hour for prayer. Afterward, the reluctant Roman captain 
asked him this. He says, Polycarp, what harm is there in saying that Caesar is Lord and offering a sacrifice to save your life? But for Polycarp, there was only one Lord, and that was Jesus. There was no compromising on that. So when they got to the Colosseum, the proconsul, which was the leading group at that time, told him two things. Choose Caesar and live. Choose Jesus and die. That's the choices you have. Choose Caesar and live. Choose Jesus and die. Here's what Polycarp told them. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my, blaspheme my king who saved me? So the pro-council threatened him with burning. And this is what Polycarp said to them when they, when they threatened him with the burning at the stake. This is what, this is what he said. He said, you, you threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched. For you do not know the fire which awaits the wicked in the judgment to come and in everlasting punishment. And then he said this, so why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? Do what you will. Do it, because I am not going to blaspheme my Lord and Savior. Do what you will. And guess what? They did. And Polycarp was burned alive. But you know what? You, you cannot read between the lines of his story and see the, the very words that Christ wrote to the church at Smyrna earlier. Don't fear. Be faithful. Overcome. There's no second death. You know, Polycarp lived that letter. He personalized the principles so that even now, even now, centuries later, his martyrdom reads like a testimony of encouragement, doesn't it? A testimony of encouragement. You ever hear the statement, where does it hurt? Where does it hurt? Our moms and dads have always asked us that question, and as a mom and dad, we've always asked that question too. Where does it hurt? Well, I think our Heavenly Father asks His children that sometimes too. Where does it hurt? So, so pause for a moment and allow the Spirit of God to apply these last two principles of encouragement as what I would call an ointment, this ointment over the areas of hurt in your life. Allow these two principles that I'm going to share with you to, to be applied as an ointment over the areas of hurt in your life. The first one is this. Remember that the Lord knows all about your circumstances. Remember last week when we were talking about the church at Ephesus and the scripture read that he knew them, he knew of them, he knew about them, he knew them personally. Jesus knows about your circumstances. So what you need to do is you need to personalize verse 9 by inserting the particulars of your own suffering. For example, allow Jesus to say to you, I know your worries about your daughter or about your son. You know, I know your pain of abandonment or betrayal. Speak the words out loud. Then in prayerful silence, 
let him impress the truth of those words upon your heart because Jesus knows about your circumstances. And the second one is this. Remember that if things get better or they stay the same or they get worse, which is possible, Jesus is always with us. You know, circumstances cannot change Christ. Remember what the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 8 said. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. Circumstances cannot change Christ, and they will not. Entrust yourselves and your needs to the one who was persecuted before you, who was abandoned, who was crucified, but who was raised on your behalf. He was dead, and now he has come to life. Welcome here, welcome him, not fear, to abide in your hearts. Don't allow fear to get in there. Allow Jesus to, to fill that heart up so that there's no room for fear in there. Huh. The universal language of suffering can be a what I would call a redemptive language. Something that God uses to comfort others through us. You know, if we, if, if we do, as, as, as the Apostle Paul said, you know, we can use that. I'll remember when Jerry and I, we went over to, to see Kay. And those were the words. These words right here are the words that Jerry spoke. And, and these, these words are so important. Notice what it says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Comfort others as you have been comforted by God. Step into someone else's hurting world and speak the healing words God has taught you through your experiences. Be his ambassador to the lonely, to the depressed, to the confused, to the hurting around us. Be that for him. Let Christ redeem your pain as he did Paul's by using it to comfort other people. And remember I said earlier that whatever fears we have, we can rest assured that Jesus is in control and it's not going to last forever, folks. It won't last forever. On the other hand, I will say this, there are some things that do last forever. And I think this is what Polycarp was getting at. Smyrna was known as, as I said earlier, the crown city with stately buildings atop the surrounding hillside. And from a distance, the Smyrna skyline resembled this glorious crown. And that's why it was called the crown city. So when Jesus promised them the crown of life, an unending glorious future in verse 10, it must have struck a heart chord with the church at Smyrna. It must have been a, such an encouragement to them. That same unending glorious future has been promised to everyone who puts their faith, their hope, their trust, their obedience, and their whole life into Jesus. And if they remain faithful to him to the end, 
Do you know what it's like to be persecuted and poor? Some of you may know what it's like to be poor anyway. (laughs) Have you been put down more times than you've been picked up? Does your bank account fail to reflect your privileged status as one of God's chosen people? Well, let me tell you something. You're not alone, and you don't have to be afraid. Jesus' message to the persecuted, impoverished church in Smyrna is his message to us today. Our church here, this world. Don't be afraid. Don't, Don't give up. Hang in there. It won't last forever. Don't quit. Even if it costs you your life, don't quit. Stay there believing. Jesus is telling each of us right now, I have a crown of life and it's just in your size. Some of us has bigger heads than others. And so we're going to have to have different size crowns. But Jesus is telling us, I have a crown just in your size waiting for you. So, so be encouraged, my friends, my family knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. And the last thing I want to share with you this morning is this. Live as an overcomer. Notice what it says there in verse 11. The believers in Smyrna were, were, were commended for being overcomers. They, they overcame the negative attacks of society. They, they overcame the intense pressure of, of re, of, to reject Jesus. They, they overcame verbal and physical abuse. They overcame the temptation to accept the pleasures of the world instead of remaining faithful to Jesus Christ. They overcame the lies of false religions. They overcame the fear of death and they gained a crown of life. And so what the world needs to see right now The world needs to see and witness this kind of faith and this kind of spiritual boldness in us. The charge to hear what the Spirit says in verse 11 is real both then and now. The charge to live as overcomers was true then and it is true now. But what's also true is that Jesus knows you He knows your afflictions. He knows your faithfulness. And he is with you every step of the way. So remain faithful and remember that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Amen. The church at Smyrna, powerful message, powerful message. Very applicable to us today. And my encouragement to you is if you don't know Christ, if you're outside of him, this morning we offer an invitation to you to come to give your life to the Lord in the watery graves of baptism. As as Peter says in, 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 in Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive that gift of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's coming this morning to have prayer. Maybe you want to rededicate your life. Maybe like Leona and myself, you, you, want to, you, you don't want your love to grow cold towards Christ. Like, like Leona came forward last week. I just, I just offer that opportunity to you. And I pray that you would um, not leave this place having not made a decision that's going to change your life.